0: We're continuing a series on spiritual growth, and as we come to this passage of Scripture in the second chapter, we find that the key to spiritual growth is having a good understanding of what Jesus did in delivering us. When we really grasp that, we have the gratitude that will motivate us toward growth, but we also will avoid the pitfalls that we can enter when we are still in bondage to the things that Jesus delivered us from. So that's what I want us to see this morning. Now, the sermon this morning, creatively entitled Delivered, is meant to cause us to stop and think about what we've been delivered from. I'm a sucker for Westerns. I love those stories that have the good guys, the bad guys. The good guys deliver everyone from the bad guys. The story of deliverance, whether it's a Western or a historical figure who stood up and delivered people, they're things that raise that feeling of justice in us, but also relief, because we identify with those who are under bondage. Those who need someone to come alongside them and help them. And what I love about the greatest deliverance of all is that Jesus did that for us. He delivered us. And this text causes us to focus on that deliverance in a very unique way. When we come to the 13th verse, we find, first of all, that we are delivered from sin and the written code that stood against us. Look at that 13th verse. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Now, the first point that we see in this deliverance from sin and this written code that stood against us is that we were helpless, we were hopeless in delivering ourselves. The Scripture accurately describes us as dead in our sins. And what we need to understand is this, this was a perpetual state that we were in. We weren't sometimes dead, we were perpetually dead. We had no spiritual life in us whatsoever the bible makes it clear that when we are in our sin we are spiritually dead until that sin is dealt with we stand outside spiritual life being spiritually dead in our sin and in our sin nature is further described in this 13th verse because it says you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature Now, when we look earlier in the text, we see this idea of the uncircumcision of our sin nature mentioned earlier in Paul's discussion. Look at the 11th verse, and it says, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. It was talking about a spiritual transformation that takes place in us where we are no longer bound by that natural inclination to sin, but that God takes that and He puts it aside. What the Scripture is telling us here is this. We are no longer outside the family of God, the people of God. The Spirit of God delivers us from death, and He delivers us from the uncircumcision of our sin nature. In other words, that natural inclination to stay away from God. But then there's a greater truth that we find. Not only are we delivered from this death, but look at what the Scripture says as we move on in that 13th verse. God made you alive with Christ. The way that we are delivered from sin and that sin nature is by being made alive with Christ. Now, we look in our English Bibles, and some translations render this, that he made us alive with Christ. I think some are stronger when they say he made us alive together with Christ. You see, when you look in the original language, the word that is translated made alive is actually a Greek word that has with at the beginning of that word. So it's God has made us alive with Christ. But then, to add emphasis to it, the word with is repeated. It's almost as though the Scripture is saying, God made us alive with with Christ. And it's giving emphasis to our connection, our union with Jesus Christ, and it's important. Because apart from that union, we have no spiritual life. When we are in Christ, when we have a relationship with Him, We experience spiritual life. And by the way, that coming to Him happens through faith. When I place my faith in Jesus Christ, the fact that He died on the cross for my sin, the fact that He became my substitute, I am united together with Christ. And that spiritual life overcomes... The spiritual death that has been a part of my description apart from him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through him that we experience that. So then the text moves on. And after discussing the fact that although we were dead in our sins, although we were dead in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, We have been made alive together with Christ. How are we made alive together with Christ? Because sin is dealt with. In fact, the Scripture tells us that Jesus dealt with all our sins on the cross. Look at the last part of that 13th verse. And notice the Scripture says that He forgave all our sins. Now, when I look at that, I am so thankful for that one three-letter word, all our sins. Every sin that I have committed, commit, or will commit, forgiven. There is no one who has reached such a level of sin that they can't find forgiveness. The cross covers our sin. The cross and the power of Christ's sacrifice supersedes the sin of the vilest offender. So as those who have been given spiritual life, it comes together because of forgiveness. And I would submit to you that forgiveness comes together because what is described as we go on into this text. He forgave all our sins, and here's how this forgiveness came to be. Verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations. Now, when we look at this, what the Scripture is telling us is that God has blotted out our sin. That word translated canceled means to blot out. Every sin that you and I have committed when it's brought under the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross is blotted out. It's canceled. That's what opens the door forgiveness. That's what opens the door to spiritual life. His blotting out that sin. But notice how beautifully this is framed in Scripture. He has canceled the written code with its regulations that was opposed to us and stood against us and He took it away, nailing it to the cross. How did God justly deal with my sin. God is a holy God. He can't look at sin and wink at it and say, well, it doesn't really matter. God had to justly deal with every sin that we've committed. And He did it by the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, going to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, His death satisfied the requirement that God has for sin, and that is death. And he became our substitute, taking upon himself all of our sins, as described earlier in this text. He completely brought the forgiveness of God. And the imagery of this being nailed to the cross is a powerful one. For the Gentiles, when they heard being nailed to the cross, they would have thought of the imagery of crucifixion. And when the condemned man was crucified, above the condemned man would be the offenses that he had committed. And so when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the imagery that we find here is, every one of my offenses was nailed to the cross with Christ. You see, although Christ was sinless, he paid for my sin. So, every lie that I've told, every corner that I've cut, everything that I've done, brought under the blood of Jesus Christ, nailed to the cross with Him, delivered. All of us experience that same deliverance when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Something else To the Jewish hearers, being nailed to the cross would have been associated with the curse. You see, everything hung on a tree considered a curse in Scripture. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So, the key to experiencing the forgiveness of God and this relationship with God is faith Taking God at his word that if I trust him for forgiveness, he will give it to me. I trust, I place my faith in what God has said. But then it goes on to say this. The law is not contrary on faith. Or, or the law is based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things must live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. So when the scripture talks about Jesus being nailed to the cross, the imagery is him being nailed to a tree, which would have been a curse to those who were the Jewish readers of this text. And then this principle is quoted from the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This is how Jesus brought forgiveness. He delivered us from death. He delivered us from sin. But then as we come to verse 15, we find that he has disarmed the spiritual forces that were against us. Look at the 15th verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The amazing thing about the cross of Jesus Christ is this the enemies of God saw the cross as a victory. There is weakness in the Messiah. He has died. In reality, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a triumph. It was a tremendous victory because it delivers us from sin, but it also Discloses the weakness of Satan and the breaking of his power. The cross delivers us from the spiritual forces of darkness. When this 15th verse says he disarmed the powers and authorities. Powers and authorities refers to Satan and all of his power. Those were disarmed by Christ on the cross. And it goes on to say he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Listen. In the days in which this was written, in the first century, everyone would have understood what triumph meant in the Roman context. And here's what it meant. When a conquering army defeated another army, There was a procession that would go through Rome itself. The conquering army would lead the procession. The defeated army would follow behind. And that was a description of a win. This is what Paul describes Jesus' cross as. A triumph, a triumphal entry. And he shares this with The Corinthians, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. The cross delivers us from sin, from death, and from the spiritual forces of darkness. And for that, we can be truly thankful. But you know, there's more that the cross has delivered us from. As Paul concludes this text, he shares with us that we have also been delivered from bondage to man-made religion. Look carefully at the 16th verse. In verses 16 and 17, we find that we are not to substitute the shadow of the law for the reality of Christ. Look at 16. Therefore, now... The old saying is, when there's a therefore, go back and see what it's there for. Remember, we've just seen that we're delivered. So what does that mean practically for me? How do I apply this to my life? If it's true that I've been delivered from sin and death and spiritual forces, then I don't want to find bondage in something else. Don't let bondage to man-made rules replace what you've been delivered from. That's the idea. So... Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And we're going to pause here for a moment and we're going to consider what he's saying. Don't let anyone judge you. Now, I don't know about you, but for me it's awfully hard to not have people judge us. When he says don't let anyone judge you, it doesn't mean that you can stop their judging. But you know what it does mean? You can stop the way you respond to their judging. You see, very often people take legalistic standards and they use it as a means of controlling people. If I can tell people constantly that they're falling short, then that makes me look more important and more spiritual. So by browbeating, by fault-finding... By demanding that people follow a set of standards that I've put into place, I can exercise power over them. And yes, this can even go on in Bible-believing churches, and we need to be careful of it. When Paul is talking here in the 16th verse, he specifies some areas that were true to some of the challenges for the Colossians, but I think they're even true today. They were taking Old Testament law, and they weren't seeing the purpose of the Old Testament law. You see, Old Testament law has as its purpose the desire to point us to Christ. But what happened? Many took the Old Testament law that was meant to move us toward holiness and the worship of God, and they made it... A God itself. They elevated it to the point that when God Himself came and lived among them, they couldn't recognize Him. Because they worshipped the law and their interpretation of it rather than God. So they were confused. What the Scripture is telling us here is the law wasn't meant to be the end-all be-all. As a matter of fact, look at the 17th verse. Verse 17 says these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What was the purpose of the law? In Galatians, we see this. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge, now look at this, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, by doing what the law commands, we would never be in right standing with God. That's what justified means. It wasn't until the law showed us that we needed Christ that we would come to Him. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. In other words, all of these standards, do not eat, do not drink, do not miss this festival, make sure you observe the new moon and the Sabbath day, all of those rules, all of those laws pointing us in the direction of Jesus Christ, but the fulfillment of it all is Christ Himself. And so the warning here is this. Don't allow yourself to supplant standards and rules for a relationship with God. As human beings, we want to say, I contributed toward my salvation by doing this. It's ingrained in us. That's part of that natural man that the Scripture talks about. And none of us can contribute one iota to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteous sacrifice on the cross secures for us salvation. So when we fall under the judgment of man and we come to the place to where we're under the control of man and we are constantly being intimidated... By man and man made rules and man made interpretation of God's rules, it robs us of the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ. We become bound to that just as we had been bound to sin and death and the spiritual forces of darkness. Look at what else we find in verse 18. Don't substitute experiences for Christ. There are always going to be those who love to toot their own spiritual horn. And many of them will cause the unwary to gather around them because of their dramatic experiences. Look at verse 18 and look at what it says. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility... Now, we're going to take these one by one and let's look at this. There is a true humility that the scripture upholds as a virtue. But there is a false humility that many who are the fault finders and the legalistic types will claim, but they do not possess. Listen, we need to be careful that we don't fall in. To this false humility. If I'm walking around talking about how humble I am, then I've probably missed out on what humility truly is. Humble people don't have to convince other people that they're humble, it's a conclusion that they'll come to all on their own. So we don't want to delight in false humility. Look at what else. The worship of angels. Now, when we look at this text, we wonder, well, worship of angels, what is he talking about? Worship of angels. Here's the idea. Within the church at Colossae, there were people who were actually focused on angels as a spiritual means of getting closer to God. They had teachings that were floating around that were just completely contrary to Scripture. And they were substituting, once again... The created for the creator. You know, when we look in Scripture, what does an angel do every time somebody tries to bow down and worship them as recorded in Scripture? Don't worship me. Worship God. Right? Any doctrine that elevates an angel and says, let's focus on the angels. Aren't they neat? They're wonderful Beings and, and by the way, they are wonderful creations of God. I'm thankful for their ministry to us, but they're not to be worshipped. Not to be worshipped. And so here, the Word of God was warning the church of Colossae against worshipping them. And we see in our culture even a fixation on angels that we need to be careful of. Look at what else the text tells us. In addition to those who delight in false humility, who worship the, the the danger in this is they can disqualify us from the prize. Now what the Scripture means by this is we can get distracted by many of these things as we seek to serve and follow God. And while it doesn't cause us to lose our salvation, it can cause us to lose our reward. It can distract us from the purpose that God calls us to. Now, this warning is found in another passage of Scripture. And sorry, I didn't uh, get that on the slides. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. You can see that on that streaky Scripture outline that we gave you from our old printer. <laughs> but look at what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, "'If what He has built survives,' he will receive his reward. Now, the context of this, Paul was saying, whatever you do, build it on the foundation of Christ. So if what I am doing is built on the foundation of Christ, my reward survives. If I'm building it on false humility, if I'm building it on worship of angels, if I'm building it on observance of rules, then my reward won't survive. But thank God for verse 15. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. Then, these next words thankfully, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. If you want your life to count, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, don't get distracted by the experiences of others. Look at what it goes on to say in this text. After it discusses this disqualification from a prize, it describes the kind of people who perpetuate this legalism. It says, Such a person goes into a great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So this is the kind of person who claims that they have witnessed something. Interestingly, not documented, not shared in Scripture. It's a new insight. So listen to me. You know, when I was in uh, college ministry in my first church in Colorado State University, there was a fellow who sat in the student center And there was this modern art thing on the wall. It was called the squashed zebra. Uh, It it looked like somebody ran over and pancaked a zebra. And it's hanging on the wall. And this guy would come and students would, he was an older gentleman, um, well into retirement. Students would come to him and ask advice. And he would say, God has just told me. And then he would say something to them. And as I sat and listened, many of the things that he did in the way of counsel were just flat out against Scripture. I mean, the opposite to scriptural wisdom. So I went over to him one day and I said, You know, brother, you're misleading these students with what you share. You're you're claiming that you're hearing from God, but God is consistent with His Word. And he says, Oh, I never read scripture. I hear directly from God. No. And the result were idle notions. That characterized his counsel as he talked to the students. We need to be careful of that. And look at what happens when we follow these distractions. Verse 19, he has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Now, who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ. He is to be our focal point, not new ideas, not dramatic experiences, not personalities that come and want you to follow them out of some feigned humility. The head, He is to be the focal point of our lives. Final thought, and I already put it up there, don't substitute externalism for interchange. Look at verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, when we come to the last part of this text, the emphasis is on the externals. Many people think that I can change myself spiritually from the outside in. And unfortunately, there are even Bible-believing churches that promote this kind of thinking. If you follow our list, if you do the things that we say, then you will be spiritual. That's what the Bible refers to as legalism. When man takes Scripture and makes your spirituality determined by the list that they produce and promote, that's legalism. Now the problem with legalism is this. You know, you know when you drive, anybody that goes faster than you is a maniac and anyone who goes slower than you is a moron, <laughs> right? When it comes to legalism, anyone who's stricter than me is a legalist and anyone who's looser to me is living in licentiousness, right? We all fall into that trap. Here what the Word of God, though, is telling us is this. Look. If your thought process is, by doing these external things, I become more spiritual, you're going down the wrong path. I would say to you that the standards are important, and they're right, and they're good, but the reason for those standards are what really matter. If I see rules and standards as a means to becoming more spiritual, then I'm barking up the wrong tree. However, if those are the result of an internal change that God is doing within me, and the behavior is the result, then that's got it right. God transforms us. I can't transform myself. God transforms me. And so if I see something in God's Word and it says, you know, to to lead a, a righteous life, I, I should do that, and the Spirit of God speaks to my heart and says, Rob, you know, you've been getting this wrong, you, you need to really change in this, then by all means, I need to change. But, if I hear another Christian say, well, you know, I just don't think that's right. Shouldn't do that, because I don't think it's right. Guess what? Wrong motivation. I don't leave, live to please the other person. I live to please God. And so that's where we need to be, living our lives to please God. So that's why in this text, we find this stark warning. Look at verse 22. The rules that people so often put into place are described as things that are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Now, do you catch this? The problem with man-made rules is this, they're always in flux, they always change. You get man-made rules and pretty soon people ignore them, look at it a different way, find that really they weren't what they had been presented to be, and they die. The Word of God remains consistent and true and lasts forever. If I invest my life in the man-made rules and the traditions of man, not Scripture, then I'm going to be misdirected and misunderstand what it is to truly walk with God. I will have that outside-in approach rather than the more biblical inside-out approach. Then look at this closing statement. In discussing these religions, religious apparitions, it says this, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, what's he saying here? If I take the outside-in approach, guess what happens? Eventually, it collapses on itself. I can't maintain that. I'm going to come to the place of utter discouragement. I'm going to see it played out. Why? Because the outside-in approach is an approach that feeds the flesh and my pride, and it collapses. Oh, it has the appearance of being very spiritual. My list is longer than your list, so I'm more spiritual than you. Right? That's the impression that we can give. Look at how spiritual that person is. He's absolutely miserable. He's got to be spiritual. And that's the impression that we have. But here's the problem. The outside-in approach doesn't work. You become a fault finder, constantly looking at the lives of other people. You evaluate yourself on the curve. Well, I may have done something wrong, but I'm not as bad as this person over here. Sorry, I wasn't pointing at you, Dan. (laughs) You know, we're not like that, right? And so we have this false image of our own spirituality that is being produced outwardly, hoping that somehow it affects us inwardly. But what does the Scripture say? It lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, if God isn't transforming me from within, I may have all of these rules on the outside, but if the Spirit of God isn't working in my life to grow me, I still have that sin nature motivation. And so, when my flesh says, don't do such and such, my sin nature is saying, yeah, I really shouldn't do such and such. Boy, that's interesting. I kind of want to do that. But I won't. Maybe I will. And, and we go through this whole problem because if I'm outwardly changed and not inwardly changed, I haven't been changed at all. I grew up in an extremely strict what... I would call legalistic church. There was a young man in our church who had one of those really long lists of rules and he loved to apply them to me. And we had many discussions about his list. And I was starting to read scripture about our freedom in Christ and I challenged him on some of those things and he said I'd gone completely liberal. And so I said well thank you for your opinion we'll just move on Interestingly about a year into seminary and I hadn't had any contact with him for probably 3 years phone call from my mom and she told me about this individual and the deep morality that immorality that he had fallen into just had completely gone off the reservation and things that the world would look at and say that's sick He had engaged in those things. You see, while all of those lists and rules had the appearance of wisdom, they lacked any value in suppressing the sensual indulgence that was a part of his heart. We change from the inside out as the Spirit of God works in us to transform us. Yes, through His Word. Yes, through interaction with other believers. Iron sharpening iron. I don't mean to minimize those things but certainly not by fault-finding, certainly not by writing lists of legalistic standards that we judge others by. God wants us to have a relationship that focuses on Him. And that relationship focusing on Him comes by faith, not by a list of rules or standards, but by a personal faith in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you this morning... You've been delivered. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have come to God through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, you have been delivered. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been brought into a unique and special relationship with God. But that's just the beginning. As God continues to work in your life, He is transforming you from the inside out. Don't get it confused. Don't get distracted. Don't look at those who would judge you and cause you to feel defeated and in bondage again. Look to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text and we thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we have found forgiveness in Jesus. Thank you for the precious forgiveness that He gives. Absolutely complete, forgiving all our sin, past, present, future, all nailed to the cross. God, may we live as those who are no longer in bondage to sin and death and spiritual forces of darkness, no longer in bondage to those who would seek to rob us of our liberty. Let us invest our freedom in Jesus Christ and a deeper walk with Him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.